Well, we are in a series on the Gospel of Luke, and this week we come to a section of text, and there are many like this one in the Bible, that most Christians typically skip over and treat as largely irrelevant. Well, not today. Uh, genealogies are not merely important in the sense that the Holy Spirit and in turn the authors of the Bible thought they should be included uh, in the text, but because they serve as important theological and historical markers of time, uh, in particular with how God accomplishes his promises. So our text today is Luke chapter 3. We're going to pick it up with verse 28. And, and let me just say this is the most difficult uh, public reading of Scripture uh, I have ever done. Uh, so uh, I'm just, if I can get... I'm going to go with 60% of these 77 names correct. I'm going to feel pretty, pretty good. So here we go. Uh, Luke chapter 3, beginning in verse 23. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Matat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of uh, Nagai, the son of Maat, the son of Mattathias, the son of Semain, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Jaonan, the son of Risa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Milki, the son of Adai, the son of Kosam, the son of Elmadam, the son of Er, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Joram, the son of Matat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Malia, the son of Minna, the son of Matatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Ruah, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Kainan, the son of Arphaxad, that's the hardest one, y'all. Uh, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalil, the son of Kainan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Well, this is the word of the Lord, believe it or not. Thanks be to God for it. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this text that seems very difficult to us, very uh, distant culturally to us, and yet, Lord, through your Spirit, you worked in these authors to present this to us, and so it is for our good. I pray, then, that this time together meditating on these lists of names, these people who have gone before us who lead directly to the Messiah, that you would bless us in this time, that we might have eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that would be moved to want to follow you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
All right, so most Christians rightly understand the book of Genesis as a book of beginnings. First line of the book, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But within the book of Genesis, it's actually structured as a book of genealogies. And of course, a genealogy is a record of births, which is a new beginning. So as you read each new part of the story in Genesis, you will find a genealogy beginning with Adam, Noah, Shem, Terah, Isaac, and Jacob. And even before that, uh, Genesis 2-4 is given as the generations of the heavens and the earth, really as a bridge from a large-scale focus in chapter 1 of all of uh, creation to a focus on the land itself. And then again, as you go through the book of Genesis, to humanity's place in the land and in the world. So these genealogies are not given merely as a historical record, though they, of course, are that, but more so they are in the text to show the movement of the promise God made to Eve that one of her offspring, a literal human descendant, would crush the head of spiritual evil and the serpent. So the genealogies in Genesis, and we can say this about really the entire movement of the Old Testament leading to the New Testament is the movement of salvation history and, and is there to show that, that God was faithfully bringing about his promise of a human redeemer and a king that will come through this particular lineage, this people group known as the Hebrews, and in turn will save all the nations through them. Now, as an aside, with all of these genealogies, as you look at them, there are a ton of interesting details and little wrinkles uh, within these genealogies that point to the character and the faithfulness of God to his people. So for just one example out of Genesis, uh, as Arthur just points out, he says at the end of the book of Genesis, the messianic blessing, for example, doesn't go through Joseph like we would probably expect it to go. I mean, after all, Joseph is a messianic figure. He's the one who winds up being the one who, who uh, rescues his brothers and, and all of Israel and really all of the world at that time. No, the messianic blessing doesn't go through Joseph. It goes through Judah, Jacob's fourth son, who was, well, at best, he's a mixed bag. So on the one hand, Judah was the spokesman for the brothers in Egypt, and clearly he felt some remorse, and he was repentant for how they had treated their brother Joseph, if you know the story. But on the other hand, after the death of his son Ur, who was a, a wicked son who God himself put to death, and he had married a Canaanite woman, which indicates Judah is not pursuing faithfulness as he should, well, he fathered a child by his daughter-in-law, Tamar, who Judah had refused to provide for, which, as the head of his, his family, was his responsibility. And in turn, in her desperation, she fooled him into believing she was a cultic prostitute in order to get him to act. So the details, and I'm sparing a lot here, the details about his son and his willingness to engage with prostitutes and his refusal to act on behalf of his daughter-in-law tells you a lot about how Judah was at one point in his life. That's Genesis 38. 
It's not preached on very often. And, and Judah is intentionally contrasted against faithful Joseph in chapter 39 and how he responded to Potiphar's wife. It's a contrasting two different pictures of faithfulness. And yet, which lineage does God choose to bring forth the Messiah? It's fascinating, right? And the reason I point this out, besides the fact that Scripture points it out, is that it is a subtle indication, and the text never directly says this. It's an association that membership in the family of the Messiah is by grace through faith, not ultimately through bloodlines. It's why a repentant man, which he was, like Judah, can be restored by God, and through his family, in his lineage, God brought forth the Redeemer who would bless the world. It's why Matthew's genealogy, for example, highlights names like Rahab and Ruth, both women formerly part of people groups that were enemies of God, and yet through them, like Judah, God brings forth the Redeemer. Now, in comparison to the Old Testament, and the Old Testament has a lot of genealogies, in the New Testament, there's only two. There's only two. The genealogy in the Gospel of Matthew uh, functions in certain ways like a new or second Genesis, and thus Matthew begins his Gospel account with the line, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, or actually more literally in the Greek, it's the book of Genesis of Jesus Christ. That's how it reads literally in the Greek. Luke obviously contains the other genealogy uh, in the New Testament, and he also ties the genealogy of Jesus to Genesis as well, but he, he places his genealogy later. He puts it in chapter 3 of his book as opposed to right at the beginning, and he does so because it's a bridge between the birth of Jesus, those narratives about his childhood that we've already looked at, that's chapters 1 and 2, uh, and going into chapter 3, and uh, his baptism, Jesus' baptism, and the public announcement that Jesus is the Son of God, which, by the way, all the stuff leading up to his birth was announcing he is the Son of God. And so this, this moment with this genealogy, this assertion of his, his background comes right before Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, also as the Son of God. And so Luke, if you can't tell, he really wants us to see that Jesus is the Son of God before his public ministry ever begins. So in Luke, uh, in verse 23 of our, our chapter, uh, Luke gives a quick statement that Jesus began his ministry when he was about 30 years old and then inserts this genealogy and then we will pick it up, right back up with, with the temptation. But him saying this is, is not just an important marker for you know, historical reference, like, oh, he's about 30, great. No, he puts it in there because it ties Jesus to other important figures or roles in the Old Testament. So for example, a Levite could not start serving as a priest until he was 30 years old. David was about 30 years old when he began to rule as king in Israel. Joseph was about 30 years old when he began his service at the right hand of Pharaoh in Egypt. And so here, Jesus, the son and heir of David, our great high priest who serves at the right hand of the Father, began his public ministry at 30 years old. You're supposed to make those associations with what has come 
before. So as much as Luke wants us to see that Jesus is the Son of God, and he is, he also wants us to see that Jesus is the son of Adam too. And he's doing roles that other Adams have done. So Luke tells us that Jesus was about 30 years old, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph. And the literal Greek says, being the son, as was supposed, Joseph. And what follows then are of, of Heli, of Matat, of Levi, of all those 77 names I read. And there's no of Joseph in the Greek following Jesus. So it's not Jesus of Joseph. It's just Joseph, which is a strange uh, grammatical uh, feature, and it's purposeful. It's different than all the others that come after that. And the reason is that Luke is highlighting that Jesus was not of Joseph, like how Joseph was of Heli. That is, Jesus was not of natural descent from Joseph. And so Joseph was not his actual father, as many suppose. No, God, like with Adam, was Jesus' father. Now, to be sure, Joseph legally adopted Jesus as his son, which is right and good, and so they, that lineage goes that way. And Jesus, in turn, could rightly trace his lineage then through Joseph, as they do here. But Jesus' lineage, again, like Adam, flows right from God himself. Even so, the critical difference between Adam, who we can rightly call God's son, and Luke does that in this genealogy, well, the difference is that Adam was created by God, formed from the dust. Jesus was not created. Jesus, as we confess in the creed, was begotten, not made. And what that means is that the Father and the Son have always been in the relationship of Father and Son, bound by the Spirit as one God, even as they are three distinct persons, equal in being and glory and power. They've always been in that relationship. So Jesus was not created. He has eternally existed together with the Father and the Spirit forever in this relationship. Now, following this initial statement on Jesus, Luke gives then 11 groupings of seven names or a total of 77 names moving backwards from Jesus all the way to Adam. Now, normally, genealogies in the Bible go forward. It's like what uh, we see throughout the Bible or in, in Matthew's gospel. So Luke's genealogy is in the, well, the Greco-Roman uh, style of genealogies, and so it goes backwards, which would make sense because much of his audience was uh, really Gentile in that Greek or Roman background. In Matthew's genealogy, Matthew defines his genealogy by, or he structures it by identifying Jesus as the son of David and the son of Abraham. He does that up front. He says that right up front and then traces from Abraham to Jesus uh, with the intentional grouping of three sets of 14 generations each, moving from Abraham to David, that's one set, from David to the Babylonian exile, that's another set, and then from that point uh, to Jesus. And Matthew's reason for doing this, the point is that the promise made to Abraham that the world would be saved through his offspring, together with the promise made to David, that this same Redeemer would also be one of his heirs who would sit on David's throne forever, it was happening. It had been fulfilled through the line of Judah culminating with Jesus. 
Luke's genealogy highlights many of the same names as Matthew's genealogy. By the way, it also highlights some major names from Genesis and the way Genesis is structured too with Adam, Seth, Noah, Shem, Terah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. But it also includes a lot of other names that are much less familiar to us. They were familiar to them, but to us, many of them, we don't know. And we're not going to take, you might be happy about this, we're not going to take time to go through each of these names, uh, even as they are all important. Instead, what we want to do with our time, otherwise we'd be here a long time, is, is consider what Luke communicates through this genealogy as a whole. What's he doing? What's he want us to see by putting this genealogy here? So, whereas Matthew's genealogy focuses on Jesus as the son of Abraham and the son of David, that is, he is the heir and fulfillment to two great covenants, Luke focuses on Jesus as the son of Adam and the son of God, which is obviously, it's similar, it's similar, but it's, it's also distinctly different. Well, in the simplest form, Luke highlights Jesus' humanity. He's a, he's a dirt bag. When you look at the word Adam or Adam, that's basically what it, it means. He is a dirt bag, and yes, he is, and yet at the same time, he is an image bearer, given glory and dominion, formed from the dust, like Adam. But unlike Adam, he is also God. So he does not merely have the appearance of a human. He's not posing as one of us. He's truly as human as you and I, with all the things about our bodies, yet without sin. He's literally the human descendant promised to Eve. So when older or ancient authors talk about God condescending, condescending to our position, that doesn't mean that God looked down on us in arrogance. No, it means like we saw with Jesus at his baptism, that he purposely joined himself to us by literally becoming one of us. That's why he's Emmanuel, God with us. But Jesus also is not merely a God, lowercase g. No, he's the God. He's identified with the same Yahweh who created the heavens and the earth and the same Yahweh of the burning bush who led Israel out of Egypt. So he's not divine in the sense that he is a spiritual creature like, say, a cherubim. His sonship does not make him a little lower than God the Father, even as he willingly submits to him. No, as all the early ecumenical creeds stress, as well as the entire New Testament, Jesus is fully God and fully man. To deny either aspect of his nature is at best a misunderstanding, which, by the way, you will hear Christians in our community misunderstand this. You will. So it's either a misunderstanding at best or, at worst, it is outright heresy. So for good reason, groups as diverse as the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons, Muslims, and modern Judaism, they can affirm various things about Jesus. They can affirm that he truly existed. And as an aside, Jesus is easily the most historically attested figure of antiquity, far more than his Roman contemporaries like, say, Caesar Augustus. Or perhaps these, these groups can affirm that Jesus was a prophet or was the son of God in the same sense that maybe Hercules is the son of Zeus. You know, 
superhuman, but not equal to the one true God. But even as these various groups can admit to his existence or hold him in some regard, they absolutely reject what Luke, like the rest of the New Testament authors, believed and what the Old Testament looked forward to, that Jesus was and is fully God and fully man. It's why in 1 John chapter 4, John says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. So in John's day, it was easy, at least for Gentiles, to confess to Jesus' divinity in some sense. And they had categories for the gods coming among humans and taking on flesh. In fact, you can see that happen with Paul in some of his preaching in the book of Acts, where they mistake him for a god. But it was really difficult for them to accept that God would take on flesh. That seemed utterly preposterous. No god would become human like us. Certainly no god would submit to crucifixion. That is ridiculous. In our day, it's the opposite. So people can accept that Jesus was a real human, and you have to willfully deny a whole lot of evidence, and no historian worth their salt would ever deny it. But they really, people really struggle to accept that Jesus is also God. That is preposterous. That is ridiculous in our time period. So the question isn't merely, do you believe in Jesus in some way? The question is, who do you say Jesus is? To confess that Jesus is the Christ is to confess that he is fully God and fully man. Full stop. That's front and center in the New Testament. And to deny that is not to be a Christian. Otherwise, like what we see with Islam or the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons and many others, to deny this is, as John puts it, is to have the spirit of Antichrist. And why each of those groups in turn reject the New Testament as it stands. But why does it matter that Jesus was fully God and fully human? Why does Luke take the time to stress this? Well, if you look at the Apostles' Creed in the bulletin, it's divided into three articles focusing on what we believe about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's, it's triune, you might say, and that's, that's purposeful. And if you'll notice, the second and longest article focuses on both Jesus' divinity, he is the Son of God, see at the right hand of the Father, who was born, lived, and died a completely human life in actual space and time. So you get both. The Son of Adam, the Son of God. The Nicene Creed, which was composed in 325, which was modeled after the Apostles' Creed, which came first, it goes into more depth. And in fact, if you feel like reading it, I'm not going to read it today, it's on page 846 of your hymnal. Uh, if, you, if you wanted to look through that. Uh, it goes into more depth about who Jesus is, highlighting both his divinity and his humanity, just as Luke does throughout the first three chapters of his gospel. And, and by the way, these creeds exist not because they're trying to set theology, but because they are reacting to heresy. 
to what was believed by the church and was coming under fire. So as you look at the growth from the Apostles' Creed to the Nicene Creed, what you see are the attacks on Jesus' humanity and divinity have grown. And more and more people are rejecting it. So the spirit of Antichrist, as John talks about, was alive and was at work. So anyway, both of these creeds are examples of what is called systematic theology in which what the Bible teaches about a particular subject, and in this case it's the question, who is God? It takes what the Bible teaches and it crystallizes it into succinct statements. So do such statements perfectly capture the totality of the question or what the Bible teaches? No, of course not. There is so much more we could say about Jesus' humanity and divinity. But they're useful, and they're like handles for us getting a grip uh, on, on what the Bible teaches. So what the Nicene Creed makes more explicit than the Apostles' Creed is that the two natures of Christ, his humanity and his divinity, are at the heart of the phrase, for us and our salvation. So why is Jesus the God-man? Why did the second member of the Trinity take on flesh, condescending to us in order to be in solidarity and communion with us? Why does Luke structure his genealogy to climax with the Son of Adam, the Son of God, for us and our salvation? So, for example, in Romans 5, and you can find this all over, but we'll just take Romans 5. Paul talks about this in terms of the two Adams. Through the rebellion of the first Adam, sin and death came to define all of humanity. And because God would not give up on his image bearers, because he refused to let them die and return to the ground as dust forever, and because he refused to give up on what he created humanity to do and to be, God sent forth his son, the second Adam, to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. And so, like we see with the covenant God made with Abraham in Genesis 15, do you remember that, that covenant? And you see uh, this in the actual covenant-making process with the cutting of the animals in half. Remember it now? The cutting of the animals in half and God's fiery presence walking through the middle of those slain animals. God keeps both his side of the relationship and our side of the relationship too. He is both law giver and law keeper. He both enacts the curse, the penalty for breaking the covenant, and he endures the curse and the penalty for breaking the covenant. See, God is both faithful to us and he is faithful for us. And so in taking on flesh, Jesus not only fulfilled the demands of the law, offering his life as a sacrifice for our sins, like the sacrificed animals in Genesis 15, taking the penalty and the curse that we deserve and dying in our place through his resurrection, which the Bible is building towards. The Bible is building and building and building towards resurrection. We have been given the promise of resurrection too. And like with Genesis 15, what God promises to do he guarantees he will accomplish. And none of this talk is figurative. This story is not an allegory. It's not a metaphor for personal development or spiritual enrichment, whatever that means. It's all literal. Otherwise, why bother? 
right? Why bother with a myth or a metaphor or personal growth when our end will still be to rot in the ground? Is this merely, if this, let me say, if this is merely some story, some growth and personal development, despite the Bible being a work of literary genius, then you know what? It's no better than Star Wars. And I'm no better than George Lucas up here talking about it. As Paul so poignantly says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Jesus was not literally raised from the dead, then death is still our future, and we are idiots for hoping otherwise. But Jesus, the God-man for us and our salvation, was literally, not figuratively, sacrificed on the altar, enduring God's burning wrath, and in turn, raised from the dead, and because of it, we have hope. Not just in this life, which is hard, but in the life to come as well. Well, I'd not be doing this, this genealogy justice if I didn't spend at least just a few minutes, just a few minutes, talking through those numbers and why it's structured in just the way it is. It's not accidental, for example, that in Matthew's genealogy, he structures the generations in three patterns of 14, seven plus seven, beginning with Abraham, hitting David right in the middle, and ending with Jesus. And in case you failed to count the names up, Matthew tells you in his text after the fact that this is, in fact, what he did. He wants you to see that grouping of numbers. Seven, of course, is the number of completion, like what we see with the days of creation and how God intentionally commands us to pattern our time this way and to pattern our life on his time. In 14, seven plus seven is like how Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread are celebrated for seven plus seven, which again says your time, your worship, your life will be structured as God commands you to structure, based on his own creative work. So it's a symbolic number pointing to the one who made the heavens and the earth and the seas and all that is in them and how he is at work to bring about his promises. So God is the sovereign of history. Now, that's Matthew. Luke's genealogy, while similar to Matthew's, is structured in 11 groups of seven for a total of 77 Names, So you get that number seven again. In reality, just ask the question, were there more than 42 or 77 names between Jesus and, say, Adam or Abraham? Of course there were. There were thousands, right? Of course there were. Biblical genealogies aren't trying to be exhaustive. Modern people try and do that. Biblical ones don't. They're hitting important names like Noah, David, Rahab, Ruth, and they are intentionally structured to highlight God's sovereign movement in history. That's why the number seven is key to it. They do this on purpose. What I find interesting is that Luke's genealogy is a group of 11, not 12, as we might rightly expect it to be. And when you think of the number 12, your mind should immediately go to the 12 tribes of Israel or the 12 Disciples. All that is intentional. All that is intentional. And when you look at, for example, the book of Revelation, the way John talks about the fullness of humanity and life with God is the 144,000. That's not a literal number. It's a symbolic one. 
is 12,000 times 12,000. It is the fullness of God's mercy and grace that has been poured out. And look at the fruit of what Jesus, and through his death and resurrection, has brought forth in bringing a redeemed humanity through Abraham to God. That's, that's what's in view there. Well, I think, and this is, I'm going to admit up front, could be wrong about this. This, this is a little speculative, but I think Luke gives us a structure of 11, which does not show up in the Bible, in anticipation of the 12th generation that is yet to come. And that generation, the fulfillment of Israel, begins at Pentecost with the ascension of Christ to the right hand of the Father. The 12th generation is based on the blood of Christ, and both Jew and Gentile are marked by it. And in turn, this generation has no end. It has no end. So whereas many genealogies in the Old Testament include, and he died, in Christ, there is only resurrection. The curse of death is over. So for good reason, Luke's genealogy leading up to Jesus is the last bloodline genealogy of the Bible. Even as at Pentecost we see an explosion in growth in the people of God, both Jew and Gentile. So the final 12th generation is a never-ending generation in the new Adam. So the new covenant in Jesus is marked not by circumcision, which is the marking of blood lineage, but by water, the spirit and fire that came through the blood of the second Adam and incorporates Jew and Gentile alike into that 144,000. And as we come to the Lord's Supper, this meal is a meal of the new covenant, a symbol and ritual that looks back to the Passover completed in Jesus in which the Son of God gave his actual body and blood for us and our salvation. It is a meal that we commemorate looking both backward to his death and forward to the life to come. But this is no mere ritual in which we merely remember or contemplate what God did for us. This is a sacrament, a means of grace through which the Son of God and the Son of Adam communes with us, building us up in faith, hope, and love through His Spirit. So, as we come to the Lord's Supper, we who have been baptized into Jesus, who are in union with Him, are invited to His table now as part of the never-ending 12th generation in his blood in anticipation of the life to come when we all will enjoy the resurrection of our bodies in a redeemed and restored creation and fellowship with God. All of that is at play in this simple meal. It's huge. So let's go to him in prayer as we come to the Lord's Supper. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your kindness and your graciousness and your mercy and how you are the sovereign of history, how you've been working all things out for our good and our salvation through your son. We thank you for this grace and this mercy. There is no God like you. We pray all of this in our Savior's name, Jesus. Amen.